This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alex Melamed, who is at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irvine Medical Center in New York City. He's an assistant professor there. Um, Alex, uh, welcome uh, to the discussion. And today we're going to be speaking about um, health services uh, research in gynecologic oncology. Thank you so much for having me, Pedro. I really appreciate it. So, Alex, one of the things that I wanted to get started with is just uh, for you to tell us what is health services research and how can it help take us uh, through the care of patients in gynecologic cancers? Yeah. Uh, so, health services research is really a fairly broad category uh, of research. Um, sort of most inclusively, what it means is the study of how healthcare and healthcare interventions affect patients. Uh, with uh, disease in the real world. And um, in, in gynecologic oncology research, really um, this represents the whole um, spectrum of uh, observational uh, and sometimes uh, experimental work that is and can be done to try to answer questions about how the interventions, be, be, be they cancer-directed or policy interventions or end-of-life interventions, how those really affect patients on a range of outcomes, be they you know, our most important oncologic outcomes like uh, progression and survival, or quality of life outcomes, or even you know uh, financial toxicity, or the whole spectrum of uh, a person's life and how disease and healthcare can affect it. And Alex, what is, what is the trajectory for training uh, in health services research? Is this something that you now are seeing being routinely incorporated into fellowship programs, or is this something that you have to really extend yourself beyond the fellowship? to uh, gain this type of experience? Yeah, I think, you know, the, I think the traditional model for research in fellowship was very much, you know, you showed up at fellowship somewhere, there was some kind of uh, laboratory that was set up that had an ongoing set of laboratory questions, and they integrated you into that, uh, and you would, you would get some training in research methods. I think um, as laboratory research has become more and more complex and the projects have become lengthier and lengthier, I think um, certainly when I interviewed for fellowships, there were a number of programs that offered alternative uh, approaches to uh, fulfilling the research requirement of fellowship. And some of those certainly uh, had a health services research approach. You know, the main tools of health services research, um, uh, certainly at least stuff that can get done in a year, are large observational data sets, of which there are many, um, and some uh, knowledge of, uh, of observational study designs and statistical research so that, uh, excuse me, of statistical methods so that, you know, you can, you can tell a story from these large data sets. And so I guess I would say probably uh, some formal statistical and research methods training is helpful. I had a master's of public health before I went to med school, which helped me get into this kind of work. Um, and certainly being in a place where there's some experience doing this kind of work is very helpful. But I do think there is a trend towards letting fellows participate in this kind of work. 
And uh, Alex, you, you certainly, I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, the observational studies, and, and ultimately I do want to get into the discussions about the impact on, on uh, randomized trials. But, uh, you know, certainly as of lately, we, we, we've seen a lot of clinical decisions being made, uh, you know, based on observational studies rather than prospective randomized trials. Um, what, what do you think are some of the important limitations of observational studies? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think observational studies have a number of well-known but often forgotten limitations that we should all ground ourselves in whenever either engaging in doing this kind of research or reading the results of this kind of research and figuring out how it applies to clinical decision making. So I think, you know, the most important uh, the most important limitation of observational research is, of course, that when you're looking at interventions, um, uh, those interventions are not randomly assigned uh, to patients or be it hospitals or whatever your group of analysis is. And that allows for all sorts of biases, um, which can be very hard to control for, even with appropriate statistical methods. So I think the first thing to always consider is, you know, is it likely that there are that there is selection bias or that there is unmeasured or unadjusted for confounding that could account for whatever these findings are? Uh, I think is the most significant limitation. And then there are, you know, there are just like any randomized trial, the devil is always in the details, right? How were how is exposure assigned? How is outcome ascertained? How are how does the study really work? What is the source of data and can we trust it? And all of those things have to be really integrated before you decide that, you know, uh, a significance value of P is less than 0.05 really means something that you should incorporate into into your care. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you, and it certainly is very critical that um, we are very aware about all of these factors when uh, when evaluating the the results, and, and certainly when reading the conclusions of, of these trials. Um, you know, just as a follow up to 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 this uh, question, um, in your mind, and do you feel that observational studies uh, carry enough weight to change practice? So. I, I, what I would say is it depends on what the uh, the current standard is based on. So I think you know, in the face of randomized studies, it is very hard to change practice based on observational data, um, because it is very hard to design an observational study, though I would say not impossible, but certainly very difficult to design an observational study uh, that is as likely to be presenting a true causal effect as a randomized trial. On the other hand, you know, we have many situations uh, in, in not only gynecologic oncology and not even just in oncology, but in medical care where, you know, we've inherited a standard of care that may not be based on any randomized trials. Um, and in those situations, I think observational data has the potential to be more practice impacting uh, than in situations where, for example, observational data contradicts a randomized trial. And then, Alex, uh, then 
how are gynecologic oncologists, for example, to approach a clinical dilemma for which there is limited or no evidence from a randomized clinical trial? How, how are they to, to move forward? Yeah, I, I think that, I think, you know, we face these scenarios every day in our lives as clinicians and in our practice. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with our training and with our clinical sense and, you know, with our best sense of what we should do. But I think the the proliferation of um, large databases uh, and of huge amounts of healthcare information really do give us opportunities now to have more evidence-based decision-making uh, even in the absence of randomized data. So I think that, that today, if there is a question in which we do not have randomized data, it is I think vital to look at what the observational data is, um, to evaluate it with scrutiny as we talked about because it is fraught with potential biases, but to bring that information to our patients and in a process of shared decision making to contextualize that data in helping uh, make clinical decisions. If I could give you an example, I think one example is the use of chemotherapy today uh, for low-grade uh, advanced ovarian cancer, adjuvant chemotherapy. You know, this is uh, this is a space where, in my opinion, you know, the observational data is really, excuse me, the randomized data is really very limited. You know, these patients have made up a tiny fraction of those enrolled in randomized trials. Uh, and the observation, much of the observational data in this space suggests that, you know, chemotherapy might be of limited benefit, right? Well, I think it's important to share that information with our patients when we're making a decision about whether we're going to use cytotoxic chemotherapy in this context or not. So with that, then, um, you know, certainly there was a time when, when it seemed that observational studies were required to have a multivariate regression model to be published. And now it seems that there's increasing popularity for propensity score matching and inver inverse probability uh, of treatment. Um, certainly are increasingly common methods for covariate adjustment. Could you explain how a multivariable model differs from a propensity score method and the potential advantages and disadvantages of each? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me this, uh, Pedro. You know, I think that especially as you read kind of more uh, of the high-impact journals, the JCOs and, 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 and whatnot, you see that, you know, when people in observational studies used to uh, do, you know, let's say a, a multivariate logistic regression or a multivariate Cox model, uh, there are these kind of other methods that are gaining more prominence based on propensity score. And I think one of the things to really remember is that there's nothing magic about these methods. And while they certainly have some advantages, um, they don't overcome the basic problems of biased and unobserved confounding in observational data. Um, but I think there are some advantages. So um, propensity score methods like matching or inverse probability of treatment weighting, um, you have the, the capacity to more explicitly check that the groups that you're doing this um, covariate adjustment for are really comparable. 
you know, sometimes it happens that, you know, patients that get one treatment, let's say upfront surgery for ovarian cancer or another, let's say neoadjuvant chemotherapy are so different, you know, uh, in terms of their let's say, age and health status or disease burden, that they're really just not comp comparable. And, and, and sometimes just doing a multivariate regression can cover that fact up. It can sort of disguise, make it look like you've adjusted for all the differences when really you haven't. And there are opportunities with some of these new propensity score methods to really explicitly check that you are comparing patients that really are comparable. I see, and and, uh, and Alex, what, you know, certainly as uh, as we look forward and 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 explore other options, you know, we're all taught about cohort and case control studies. Are are there other types of uh, study designs that are underused in our field, uh, which ideally can help provide evidence to supplement what we know from clinical trials? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think particularly, you know, we've inherited a lot of the methods that we use in observational data-based uh, studies from, um, you know, sort of this classic era of epidemiology where, where studies were based on large prospective cohorts that were uh, designed to answer particular questions and try to collect all the important confounders in the data set. I'm thinking about studies like the, uh, the nurse's health study and the classic epidemiologic cohorts to address smoking and lung cancer or cholesterol and heart disease. Um, you know, uh, co these the kind of traditional epidemiologic study designs are very appropriate for those data sources. But today, more and more, uh, you read articles in our journals that are based on, you know, cancer registries or insurance claims data. And these data sources are completely different because they're not, they weren't collected to answer the questions that are being asked. You know, the information there is collected for other uses and then appropriated by researchers like myself to answer questions of interest. Well, it turns out when you do that, often, almost invariably, important confounders are missing. You know that they're missing. And so to apply the kinds of cohort methods that rely on you having all the important confounders measured, it's really not appropriate. So um, one of my research interests um, is uh, is appropriating uh, study designs from other fields where this problem of missing confounders uh, and selection bias has been has existed for longer than it has for us in in clinical research. So a lot of study designs from fields like economics and actually even sociology have explicitly been designed to address this kind of problem. Um, and there's a, article, a review article that was authored by Dr. Uh, Haley Moss, who's at Duke, that I was a co-author on, that reviews a number of these methodologies. And I would really point people who are interested in observational research with, uh, with cancer registries and with insurance claims, e even with uh, electronic health medical records, to consider some of these designs uh, to answer questions that they have. So, Alex, obviously, you know, this background has given you a, a certain level of uh, sophisticated analyses of, of studies that we wish we all had. And, and I'm just going to pose this question to you. If you were 
a department chair, uh, a chair of gynecologic oncology. You certainly had the responsibility of training the future leaders of gynecologic oncology. How do you bring this to our trainees? Yeah, I think one of the one of the places that I think is a great place to start is to bring in a more uh, interdisciplinary approach uh, to observational research um, and to prioritize it. So, you know, I think I have fortunately just by luck met a number of health economists and they have really opened my eyes to um, problems with uh, observational research in clinical medicine and solutions to those problems. And I think um, there is not a place in our training where we overlap with these kinds of folks. And so to explicitly make an effort to potentially think about bringing a health economist into your department, if you had the resources to that, I think could be a game changer for a lot of places. Um, also, just if you can't do that, bringing these people to give talks um, uh, and trying to figure out how you can forge connections across departments to sort of disseminate this knowledge that exists um, but is often underutilized in our field. Alice, this has been truly uh, enjoyable, fascinating. I wish we, we had time to, uh, to speak longer. Um, do you have any closing um, remarks you would like to make to the audience? Um, uh, I, I don't think so, other than I think, you know, we're living at a golden era of information, you know, the amount of information that is being accumulated in data centers and different uh, data sources is getting larger and larger. And I think that I think we are living at a time where we it's incumbent on us to figure out how to harness and use this information uh, to improve the care of our patients. And I think that's an agenda for gynecologic oncology and into the next couple decades. Well, Alice, thank you very, very much. Uh, this really has been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Pedro. It's such an honor.